Walt Disney's Dumbo brings you a trainload of exciting new characters. Wild animals, ferocious beasts, thunderous pachyderms, jungle giants, Casey Jr., the train with a personality. Believe it or not, the most delightful Disney sequence you've ever seen, the Parade of the Pink Elephants. See Dumbo's magnificent fall to fame, the most sensational climax ever filmed. Welcome back to Whose Filmography Is It Anyway, folks, where the points don't matter, but the racially insensitive crows do. Uh, this time in the Disney golden age, uh, we tackled Dumbo, the one and only uh, America's favorite elephant. The, the silent, uh, yet sweet and somber little elephant with the big ears that make him fly and the feathers. And the You're little... flying! You're flying! <laughs> Uh, yes, and as as always, uh, I'm your co-host, uh, Josh Page, with me as always, my co-host and friend, Steve Molina. Hello, hello everyone. We, uh, this is uh, quite a doozy, this one. This is another doozy, folks. <laughs> this is a very interesting one, to be completely honest. I, it's, it's very different than Fantasia, which um, came right before it. Yes, just to catch folks up, um, we covered Fantasia last week, and as far as the history goes, Stephen will lead us on a, the history lesson, I'll, I'll chime in as always when I need to, but it's uh, basically we've hit this kind of high point for Walt, and kind of like Walt, it's kind of like where do we go from here, because uh, you've got Snow White, Pinocchio, Fantasia, and it kind of feels like it was building, 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 almost like a super trilogy, and it's kind of like, okay, where you're kind of getting more experimental and expanding a little bit. So where do we go from here? We were pushing the near two hour mark. We're breaking boundaries with musical score and animation. And now we have Dumbo. And now you have pink elephants on parade. <laughs> Those elephants are mighty pink. They were mighty pink and they were definitely on parades. <laughs> that, yeah. So do you want to just jump right into it all? Let's dive in, Stephen. Uh, take it away for the folks at home. So this movie is based on a 1938 book by Helen Aberson and Harold Pearl. So it's not as though this is uh, like Snow White or Pinocchio, which were older works that had reached like the cultural zeitgeist. This is like, you know, this movie came out in 1941, I believe. So, you know... El the story was still relatively new. Mm -hmm. um, it was uh, actually not even really like a book. It was like a flip book and no copies exist to this day. So, wow. It, it's, it's a real relic. It's a relic of its time. <laughs> so as Josh was alluding to earlier, Disney studios hit some hard times. Uh, with the failure of Pinocchio and the failure of Fantasia at the box office, not critically, not animation-wise, because like Josh and I have been saying, they just keep upping the stakes. But when it comes down to numbers, the Disney was in the hole. Their, uh, their market was cut off because of the war. I know we were talking about it, you know, how Walt blamed the war. But in reality, it did take a big hit. It took away three-fourths of Disney's revenue, which, that's huge. Yeah, that's big. Yeah. This movie only got dubbed in Spanish and Portuguese because they were the only markets that were open overseas. Uh, so, for this movie, they had to cut costs and save money. This movie total costs $950,000 dollars to make and it at the box office it made 1.3 million dollars which was a success luckily for Walt, yeah, yeah. this was you know technically a success but in order to do that money saving had to be taken into account so for example there was no time to experiment with the story everything that was conceptualized had to be drawn 
you know, like in Snow White, we talked about Ward Kimball drew like an entire soup eating sequence that just got mm. scrapped. Yeah, yeah. With Dumbo, there's no luxury like that. Whatever they came up with, had that was it. The, yeah, had to go to the page. Yeah, it's intense. The backgrounds were had had to be stationary. There's no real like playing around like with Fantasia. Josh and I were talking about how there's some sequences where the backgrounds don't even exist. But here, everything has to be fixated. Uh, everything had to be less elaborate, including the special effects. Uh, and they had to keep it more caricature than character-based. Uh, this movie was made in a matter of six months. Good That's grief. how rapid this movie had to be created made and thrown out there uh because again they didn't have the time of luxury or money Mm -hmm. and as i alluded to last week there was also the matter of the disney strike Mm -hmm. which happened in 1941 uh the beginning of the year Uh, around April, May. We don't need to go too into details. I will just say that this was a huge uh, slap in the face to... uh, I'm not not defending Walt. I'm not defending the strikers. I'm not saying who is right or wrong. I'm just (laughs) saying that this was a huge change in the studio itself. Uh, as I said after Snow White, what happened was from the profits of that movie, Walt created a brand new studio. He spent $3 million on this brand new studio for his employees. Uh, it had a gym, a barber shop, a baseball diamond, like a cafeteria with he was, room service. He prepared to give him uh, uh, the whole smorgasbord. Yeah. So Walt spent a lot of time and money trying to build this like beautiful facility. At the end of the day, it wasn't conducive to the artistic integrity of the facility. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the old office, the Hyperion studio, you would have six or seven people crowded in one room. Not very COVID friendly, but (laughs) you would have people crammed into a room working with one another. But that would lead to ideas being thrown around, pitches here and there to improve one's work in this new Disney studio, everyone is in their own room. So there started to become this bureaucratic nature to the studio in of itself. The people on top were making a lot more money. They're making like 10 times the amount more money than the people on the bottom. Oh, sounds a little like a like a ma- like major companies that uh, exist today. <laughs> uh, sounds like Disney is reverting back to such a... Thing. Oh wow! Uh, so hold on, just just, just to understand. So just so I can understand that this all—they're basically building the studio. But then after the financial flops, the studio, I guess, was losing money, and that's where the strike happened. They built up the studio after the success of Snow White. Mm-hmm. They moved in, and that they created Pinocchio, uh, Fantasia, and uh, Dumbo in this new facility. Mm-hmm. But because of the atmosphere of the building, a bureaucratic ladder was already being built. What once was a studio where artists were, would intermingle, what you have now is a bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. You have the people on top making a lot more money in different offices than the people underneath them. And yeah. it created an air of you know, superiority and the people on the bottom were just tired of being fucked over essentially yeah, yeah, of course so the screen cartoon guild which was a brand new union uh started to infiltrate the disney studios uh and because they they wanted to get all animators into the union but they figured let's start with the big dog if disney were to fall into the union then everyone would mm-hmm they would hold meetings at the Roosevelt Hotel where Art Babbitt was elected the chairman, uh, Lambertson, the vice 
Chairman uh, Hilberman, Secretary Tom Armstrong, the Treasury. So this is the second tier of the artists. You know how we were talking about. You know there were um, the first group of artists, then this group, and then there were the nine old men who came in afterward. That's right. That's right. So this was Dumbo was really the last hurrah of the second group of animators because during the strike, Art Babbitt fired Bill Teitla, who worked on Stromboli, the Chernabog, and did the animation of Dumbo in this movie, fired. They're done. Yeah. The, well, the, the, the top note I have, well, the only note that I have about it that they've listed mm-hmm. is that during production, there was a long and bitter strike in which half of the studio's uh, staff of animators walked out. Some of the strikers are caricatured as clowns who go to, quote unquote, hit the big boss for a raise in the film. Um, so I think it's funny how it like trickled down that far and that fast. Um, yeah. And I guess it just goes to show how, how, um, how, um, how much things can crumble in such a short amount of time it all came crashing down in here. And in February, Walt gathered the entire studio into the auditorium uh, and he talked to his employees, essentially saying that uh, the war depreciated the foreign market. The company was $2.5 million in the hole. Walt uh, was saying like he'd never worked harder in his entire life and him and Roy took a 75% pay cut Uh, essentially he was saying that uh you know the employees were there under his leisure and he's doing everything he can to not fire people Mm. uh ultimately it led to pay cuts for the top people by 20 percent across the board with the lower people not being touched but in may it reached a boiling point and they voted to go on strike uh, and it got very vicious and very violent. Uh, apparently, of the like thousand or so people that, yeah, of the thousand employees, about three hundred of them worked on went on strike. But to make it look more intimidating, the union called in other unions. They called in the plumber unions they called in other things to make the numbers look bigger they got their they got their support from anywhere they could yeah so but it literally tore the company apart for a short amount of time and like we were saying last week with fantasia walt really was never the same after this period he was a broken man he was a bro- <laughs> obviously he created Disneyland and moved into like other things. But in reality, when it comes to animation, after Fantasia, the boundaries that he was willing to push, that was it. He See, this is yeah. It, it it's not a huge um it's not a huge uh leap to say that this is a step down animation wise comparatively See, to what has come before it. This is the this is the season one finale where you've got your three your three films building and you've got the employees and their their crazy boss and he's like this one's gonna work this one's gonna work and then after it all crashes they find him in a warehouse and he's just smoking packs of cigarettes and then when they find him in the you know the following season premiere they see him like Howard Hughes and he's just growing a beard because he's just a disheveled man and he's not the same anymore. <laughs> I like it. I think we got something here. Tell you, man. I think we have something here. No, but what I was saying earlier about the uh, animators, Taitla did Dumbo. He finished all of the Dumbo artwork two weeks before he got fired. So Art Babbitt did The Stork. Uh, Uh Freddie Moore did Timothy the Mouse. And Ward Campbell Campbell did The Crows and The Train. I mean... Um, But Kimball didn't participate in the strike. In fact, it, like, tore him up inside to, like watch what was going on but yeah it's sad you know this is people's uh you know their their life's work you know what i mean and they're just watching it be torn apart so yeah apparently what happened was uh kimball like the day of the strike he spent a good amount of the morning outside with the strikers talking to them but like they got very 
loud and very violent. So he went inside. He said that he, he told the strikers, I'm not going to work. I'm just going to like go see what's going on in the inside, which ended up being a lie. Uh, around lunchtime, no one wanted to eat in the cafeteria because the cafeteria overlooked where the strike was happening. So they all ate lunch in the tea room, including Walt, who was with, like, I, I can't say this for a fact because I wasn't there, but essentially he was, like, checking out who was on strike and who actually came into the building. Right. And Kimball and Walt had a discussion after lunch. Uh, Kimball went to Walt's office and just, just talked with him. And Walt laid it out very bare, essentially yeah. saying, like, he felt hurt and just by everything that was going on, he's trying to do the best he can. Right. Again, I'm not saying he handled the strike properly because he did do some very seedy things to make sure that the union did not infiltrate his own studio. Sure. But at the same time, the effects are very well documented on what happened afterward. <clears throat> but it's a big part of the history. Yeah, we don't need to keep talking about the strike, but we can move into the movie itself. Uh, some influences on the movie. They said that they wanted a more surrealist approach to this movie. Like, this movie is unabashedly a cartoon. Mm -hmm. Like, that's not absolutely even hidden. You know, the train is literally bouncing up and down. Like, yeah, yeah. So they went with like a surrealist look. Some of the influences were Dolly. Uh, who Walt had worked with on a short film, uh, which actually wasn't released until 2000-something. Oh, Roy, really? Yeah, when Roy Disney Jr. Uh, finished it up. Uh, it was also based around German Expressionism. They would, they would show German Expressionistic films mm -hmm. at the studio for inspiration, which is, you know, empirically no, like seen when Timothy is the, uh, is uh, sneaking into Casey Jr.'s tent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it literally is a scene from Nosferatu. What they <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah. Uh, the Oscars, it won Best uh, Score and was nominated for Baby Be Mine. And the last note I have is that Time Magazine was going to do a cover piece on Dumbo because again, it was a huge, it was a success in its day. The $1.3 million that it made, you know, you got to take inflation into account now. That's a lot of money still. I mean, the note I have here says it grossed over 2.5 million by the end of its run. I think, I don't know if you had said that earlier, yeah. but that's, well, I didn't, but that's good. combining more than the original grosses of Pinocchio and Fantasia combined. So the way I see it is, it's just funny with, again, it's like, I, I see everything as a, TV show and a movie. So it's like, if this is the part of the story where everything's building to the strike and this like horrible backstory, it's that ultimately this is kind of the movie that not saved the studio, but it, it helped remind everyone. It was a reminder that the studio can be saved if they do things fairly and um, well, uh, they put their money in the right places. And they, I don't know. I don't know. I, it's because it sounds like everything changed between these No, you are hundred percent right. This movie did essentially save the studio. Yeah. Walt was literally looking for anything to save the studio, including like during the same, around the same time as the strike, he was showing around Canadian and U.S. military officials mm -hmm. because he was looking for any way to make money. Sure. You know, the, what we will talk about in a couple weeks is the, how invested Disney became in the war effort. Again, we'll get to that later yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. But obviously, this was this was very successful in ways that they probably didn't even foresee. Yeah, but my point was going to be that originally they were going to do a cover piece on this in Time magazine, mm -hmm. but it got usurped because Pearl Harbor happened, and that took the cover away from Dumbo. Yeah. Which you know, man, that that uh, seems fair. Yeah. Oh, I know the war was the wars were very distracting things in the time of cinema. You know, don't mention the war. <laughs> um, the top known IMDb is that initially Walt was uninterested in making this movie. To get him interested, storyman Joe Grant and Dick Humor yep. uh, wrote up the film as installments, which they were leaving on his desk every morning, to which finally he would run into the department saying, this is great, what happens next? 
Yeah, they would literally, um, Dick Humor and uh, Joe Grant would like leave cliffhangers at the end of each like treatment that they left on Walt's desk. Like That's great. Yeah. So then you ready to actually get into the movie? Yeah, let's do this thing. The film opens in a storm. A booming, jovial voice comes in. Through the snow and sleet and hail. Through the blizzard, through the gale. Through the wind and through the rain. Over mountain, over plain. Through the blinding lightning flash. And the mighty thunder crash. Ever faithful, ever true. Nothing stops him. He'll get through. I think that it's a subtle note, but it's interesting that most of the time when you are watching the train go through, only at the end does it does the train ride in sunlight. Every other time you see the train, it is dark or there's snow or rain or something happening. I think there's a metaphor here. Yeah. The storm subsides and from the clouds emerge a circle a circle of storks, all carrying bags, linen filled with babies. The song, Look Out for Mr. Stork, kicks in as the birds swoop down to a circus in Florida, which was really fun to see. Like, just the way in which they captured Florida, it was literally like... Just they the- wrote Florida on the... Yeah. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I was saying, though. This movie is, like, unabashedly a cartoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They wrote, like, Florida on it, and the train is moving, like, I, it would have to be, like, 400 miles an hour, the way it was, like, riding up Florida, you know? Yeah, yeah, No, was, it's good. It's, yeah. No, it's good. It's, uh, it's, uh, what's this? A great suspension of disbelief. Yeah. A bear gets her cub. A kanga gets her roux. And sleeping tigers get a litter of five. Mrs. Jumbo, Verna Felton, looks to the sky waiting for her baby to arrive, but no bag arrives. The next day, the circus is being loaded onto the train. Mrs. Jumbo is still looking to the sky. In the clouds, Mr. Stork, Sterling Holloway, who is Winnie the Pooh and Ka, if you didn't know that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mr. Stork is seen struggling to fly with his bag. Exhausted, he places the bag on a cloud as he sits to find out where he is. From above, he sees the train riding up the panhandle. The stork finally lands on the caboose of the train, but needs to help figuring out which car the elephants are in. Several elephant trunks pop out of the car, and Mr. Stork is on his way. Inside the car are several elephants. Elephant Caddy, Noreen Gemmel, Elephant Giddy, Dorothy Scott, Elephant Prissy, Sarah Shelby, and Elephant Matriarch, also also Verna Felton. Mr. Stork drops the bag in front of Mrs. Jumbo and recites two poems. Here is a baby with eyes of blue, straight from heaven right to you. Or, straight from heaven up above, here is a baby for you to love. Mrs. Jumbo reaches for the bag, but Mr. Stork asks for her signature. She signs with an X. Again, she reaches for the bag, but is again rebuffed by the Stork who sings happy birthday to Mrs. Jump, to Jumbo Jr. As the Stork sings, he is placed on a hook outside of the train, which, thank God, this guy was like, just give me the fucking bag. Everyone else's bag just dropped from the sky, and here you are reciting two poems, <laughs> singing happy birthday, getting a signature, just give me the fucking baby. <laughs> Just give me the bag. Just give me the bag. What's in the bag? Uh, give it to me, your old bag. <laughs> Mrs. Jumbo <laughs> finally opens the bag, and all the elephants are gleeful. Junior sneezes, and his ears expand. Immediately, all the other elephants make fun of him, oh, proclaiming just... him... Yeah. Proclaiming him Dumbo. Yeah, they really are. These They're other elephants nasty. are the worst. They're just nasty. I, you know, I, I don't like using this word, these words, because of who said them. But these are some nasty women. 
Mrs. Jumbo slams the door on the elephants and swaddles her baby with with her trunk. So rude. So yeah. disrespectful. They literally give the child the name Dumbo. Like, fuck you. <laughs> Listen, it was 19, 1941. Uh, it was a harsher time. What's interesting to me, though, is do the humans understand the elephants? Because they can't. No. No, that's cardinal rule. On, but later on, Casey Jr. calls Dumbo Dumbo, which, how did he get the name Dumbo? Well, Dumbo clearly knows his name is Dumbo, tells Timothy, and Timothy tells, uh, you know, everyone else. Yeah, but the mouse is also able to talk to Casey Jr. I feel like there's animal interaction <laughs> with the humans. Cardinal rule, listen, cardinal rule was not, it was still being written. They were kind of like, someone watched this movie and was like, hey, listen, there's a few rules that you're breaking here, all right? You can't have the humans understand the, the animals, and the animals uh, can understand humans, but it's not the other way around. Um, they were still figuring it out. Tell all the other bears what you just saw. All the, you tell all the other bears what you just saw. The train stops at the train stops in a thunderstorm. Song of the Rasbouts begins to play as the carnies and the elephants assemble the circus tent. Yeah, everyone's very excited to work through this thunderstorm. Very, very excited. The next day, Casey Jr., Herman Bing, is leading a procession down the main street of the town. All the animals are in the parade. The lions are yawning. The tigers are sleeping. The gorilla accidentally breaks and fixes the cage. And in the back, the elephants proudly march. Following, of course, trips over his own ears. Clumsy bastard. At the circus, spectators watch as Dumbo takes a bath and plays with his mother. A group of kids come into the tent. One of the kids zeroes in on Dumbo and makes fun of him. Yeah, first by this kid. There, everyone's just rude in this movie, except there are there's a group of characters that aren't rude, and will they'll come up inevitably. But first, by pretending to have big ears, and then by going behind the rope and grabbing Dumbo's ears. Mrs. Jumbo, like any other mother, freaks out and grabs the kid. Casey Jr. only sees Mrs. Jumbo's transgressions and orders his men to brutally restrain the elephant. Rough for Mrs. Rough Jumbo. I, I, whatever. This I is a very we need to talk about the cruelty on that one. Well, just I know I'll say, I'll really save it for final thoughts. But despite whatever this movie uh, negative things anyone wants to say about this movie, there's a lot of very endearing and heartwarming. Uh, tendencies to it that ultimately do pay off but which is kind of you gotta get through a lot uh later that night mrs jumbo is in a cage labeled dangerous dumbo is alone and scared the other elephants are of no help they're in a circle gossiping about what happened to mrs jumbo again everyone is so rude they Tim- are the worst I... Tim- <laughs> they're terrible they're all terrible timothy q mouse edward brophy who is already in a ringleader outfit is eating peanuts and is watching a- the gaggle of elephants Dumbo shamefully leaves the tent. Timothy has had enough. He walks over to he he walks over to the elephants and scares them. Um, just a little trivia bit I forgot to bring up earlier is that Timothy, I guess in the original story, it was originally the character was originally a robin. Yeah. And so they made it a mouse because they liked the irony of the of the stereotype that elephants are afraid of mice. Is that true, by the way? Like I don't know if that's true or not. I blame movies like this and cartoons which made us feel that way because that's just the insinuation that elephants are afraid of mice. I don't think that's, I mean, I mean, I remember um, just a, a very, uh, very different side note is when I got the, they released the Super Nintendo Classic a couple of years ago and I downloaded um, like Super Nintendo games on there and Donkey Kong Country 3, you play as an elephant and there's a whole level where you initially see these three mice and they scare you and it causes you to run into a stampede and you kind of can't stop. You kind of have to jump over obstacles. And so all that to say is that stereotype that elephants are afraid of mice uh, is clearly uh, something that, you know, was uh, not invented by this movie, but I guess there's something. Someone thought that, but. Uh, I just looked it up. That there's no real evidence that they are afraid of mice. It is more <laughs> likely that elephants, which have relatively poor eyesight, Simply become startled when mice dart past them. <laughs> this is. I wonder if this is similar to the the theory that when uh, people slip on banana peels that they uh, <laughs> that they fall again. Uh, you know, to Mario Kart, you know, same thing. It's like you slip on a banana peel, you flip upside down. It's like, does that really happen? I mean, come on. I mean, I kind of want to try it. Um, I digress. Um, <laughs> Timothy goes to tell Dumbo the good news. 
but finds him buried under a pile of hay. Timothy tries to lure him out with peanuts, but to no avail. Dumbo comes out only after Timothy offers to help get Mrs. Jumbo out of her cage. Timothy also offers to help Dumbo with his act. All they need is something to help make Dumbo great. Make Dumbo great again, right? <laughs> well, I guess Timothy is wearing that red hat, right? Oh, man, it's very, very, very red. A lot of red going on. At that moment, Casey Jr., silhouetted from his tent, interrupts with his new idea, stacking all the elephants on top of one another. <laughs> An offender here. Um, That's brilliant. The only problem is he doesn't have a climax. Timothy takes this opportunity to sneak into Casey Jr.'s tent. As the ringleader sleeps, Timothy offers him the climax he has been looking for. Phrasing. <laughs> phrasing. It's just very sexual. They keep talking about climaxes. Uh, uh, climaxing, no, no pun intended. This is the moment that was based on Nosferatu, by the way. Timothy sneaking into Casey Jr.'s tent and literally shrouding himself in uh, shadow. That's really funny. Um, Casey, Casey awakes and says, Dumbo will be the climax. Cut to Casey Jr. introducing the new elephant trick. The elephants haphazardly pile on top of one another. Dumbo, holding a white flag, is backstage watching nervously. Casey introduces Dumbo. In order to get Dumbo out from backstage, Timothy pricks him with a pin. Dumbo barrels forward and trips over his ears. He crashes into the ball, holding up all the elephants. Panic sets in. The audience flees. The tent collapses. Chaos rough, ensues. Rough day. Rough, rough stuff. Day. I, rough stuff. I mean, Dumbo clearly knocked everyone over, but this trick didn't seem very safe to begin with. You're literally piling elephant on top of elephant on top of elephant, and at the bottom of them is a ball. Like, they're not even on the ground. Well, it's really, it was kind of doomed to fail, but. The train gloomily makes its way through more rain. The elephants are all bandaged up and are furious at Dumbo, but take sadistic glee knowing that Dumbo will now be a clown. They take a solemn vow that Dumbo is no longer an elephant, which I don't understand how that works. Like, anatomically, he will always be an elephant. The circus is performing again. Dumbo is in clown makeup on a burning building facade. Clowns dressed up as firemen come in, jokingly trying to put out the fire. Dumbo is clearly scared and sweating from the heat. Finally, he jumps into the clown's uh, tarp below. The tarp breaks and Dumbo finds himself in a tank of sudsy water. After the show, the clowns are celebrating with booze. They come... (laughs) They got real drunk, too. Oh, Uh, yeah. uh, We'll just get to how drunk in two seconds. After the show, the clowns are celebrating with booze. They come up, they come to the conclusion that the stunt would be more entertaining if Dumbo fell from a higher point. The clowns think that this is such a good idea that they will run to Casey Jr., adamant that the idea will come with a raise. That's how drunk they are. They think that putting him higher up, putting an elephant higher up, in a burning facade, will get them a raise. Very classy. As they leave, a bottle of alcohol falls into a tub of water. Timothy is washing, uh, Timothy is washing a crying Dumbo. To cheer him up, Timothy brings Dumbo to see Mrs. Jumbo in her cage. Only her trunk can come out. As the song Baby Mine plays, Jumbo holds her baby through the prison bars. Which, you know, very heartwarming or heart-crushing sequence. But it also, I don't know, I felt like re-watching it this time, I felt like the sequence just felt so fast. Like, there, yeah. wasn't, there wasn't enough time for me to get emotionally sucked into this moment before you would switch over to Dumbo getting drunk yeah well to be fair and just to reiterate as we've said this is the shortest movie we've the shortest uh film we've watched 
it's on what did you say it's an hour and so 64 60, 63 64 you know minutes, so they probably like unfortunately had to just trim a lot of moments which otherwise in a normal uh feature length would have ex expanded moments like that because obviously you hold on to the emotional arcs uh and the um the, the character the moments of push character development and that's one of those moments it's supposed to tug on your heartstrings and it is a, a very uh soul-crushing moment intentionally but it's also you're right it's just it's just one little note kind of song and then it's over i would have just liked an extra minute of uh jumbo swaddling her child you know i don't know yeah yeah, yeah. uh what's also interesting about that sequence though is the music could or could not be diegetic they don't really allude to it mm -hmm. you know is mrs jumbo singing baby be mine or is it just music in the background i think they it's supposed to be just music but i'm not because I'm you not don't actually sure. see mrs jumbo you just sure. see her trunk yeah so who knows after the visit dumbo and timothy walk back dumbo has the hiccups and timothy tells him to have a drink of water you thirsty have a drink drink <laughs> drinks from the tub of water the clown's booze fell into Timothy then falls into the tub. They are both instantly drunk. Dumbo shoots bubbles out of his trunk. The bubbles soon morph as an acid trip known as the Pink Elephant Parade kicks in. Good grief. <laughs> Elephant Parade. Yeah, let's talk about this moment just like real quick. This is a... Uh... This is probably as crazy as it gets in this movie. Like this is where the fan like stuff that they learned in Fantasia comes back. Let's I, get more of this. This like could have been a whole sequence in Fantasia. This was a sequence I was devastated, got pulled from the live action Dumbo. Like, how can Tim yeah. Burton pull this moment out? If anyone could make this move, if anyone could make this moment land, it would be Tim Burton. It's for modern audiences; they couldn't handle it. I guess, but this movie, this moment is just psychedelic. It, it's crazy. You're just um, watching these bubbles turn into elephants, and yes, it is by and large <laughs> the strangest and weirdest and most psychedelic moment that we've seen thus far. I think in the Disney resume, but wicked wild stuff. It's really, and it's it's funny how elaborate the sequence is, too. Well, that's what's so interesting about it, too. I feel like it is the most elaborate and yet lucid of every sequence in the entire movie. I mean, you could have cut it and you wouldn't lose anything from the story, and yet it's probably visually, which, well, it's probably visually the most memorable part of the whole thing. Well, that's why I'm saying it almost is reminiscent of Fantasia, because it's not really a story per se it's just this ambiguous uh experimental thing that just happens to be in the movie but it's we, very bizarre we digress <laughs> as we always do the elephants dissipate into the clouds the focus shifts to a tree the jim crows yes you heard me right the jim crows <laughs> dandy uh used to be jim Crow, uh, Cliff Edwards. <laughs> That's, uh, for those who do not remember, that is the voice of Jiminy. Oh, that's great. That's it. I did not realize that. That's, he that's... plays Jim Crow. Sorry, Dandy Crow. They changed his name when Jim Crow became too uh, racially insensitive. That's so funny. Uh, Fats Crow, James Basket, Specs Crow, Nick Stewart, and Deacon Johnson and Dopey Crow, Jim Carmichael, swoop down to the tree. The crows are confused because on the lower branch are Dumbo and Timothy sleeping. Dandy Crow wakes a hung over Timothy. First, Timothy wants to know what the crows are doing on the ground, but soon realizes that he is in a tree. Timothy wakes Dumbo and they plunge into a puddle. The crows all laugh, but Timothy wants to know uh, how they got into the tree. One of the crows says, maybe Dumbo flew up. Excited, Timothy remembers that that was the case. So I see an elephant fly begins as the crows list everything they've ever seen fly. <laughs> My favorite bit. Well, I've seen a horse fly. I've seen a dragon fly. And as I said last week, I've seen a house fly. <laughs> yeah, this is... Uh, it's really something. I, I mean, I don't know. I There's not much that can be said except 
good on Disney Plus for adding a uh, a uh, warning before this movie because it is solely centered on these characters right I, here. I will say, and it's not necessarily condoning the depiction of it, but they're uh, also like the the not just the nicest and friendliest, but they're like the best characters of the of the movie, in my opinion. Just the way the way that they behave and the way that they act they're just very they're very likable characters so even though they're depicted in a a racially insensitive way i think they're still good characters you know what i mean well that's uh you know that's the whole thing right when you look back on movie like let's talk about gone with the wind for a minute because that really set the template for black archetypes right in each movie you have the mammy and you have the you know so-and-so and And these are all just like very stereotypical just like absolutely but like i said it's very good that they put the um disclaimer before this movie because it is just solely dependent on these characters right here yeah while they are the nicest of the characters they are also just like uh i don't know (laughs) <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I, I see what you're... I, mean, I completely see how it's depicted, and of course, but um, I don't know. I just... Yeah, it's really... There's not much that can be said that can, hasn't been said about it, but... Yeah. <laughs> uh, Timothy loses his cool with the crows, explaining Dumbo's hardships. The crows are sorry and want to make up for it. They say they will help Dumbo fly with, his, with psychology. <laughs> they give Dumbo a magic feather and push him off a cliff. Instantly, Dumbo is flying. The elephant and crows land on an electric pole, ecstatic. Yeah, uh, how that electric pole did not crash or how Dumbo did not get electrocuted is beyond me, but Dumbo is in his clown makeup waiting for his cue to jump. Finally, he jumps, but loses his magic feather on the way down. Timothy yells at Dumbo to believe in himself. Just before he hits the barrel, Dumbo takes off and flies around the tent getting his revenge by scaring the clowns, pushing Casey Jr. in water, and shooting peanuts at the other elephants. Newspaper clips fly past the screen, showing Dumbo's instant success. The final cover shown is Timothy signing a deal with du- as Dumbo's agent. This is why I think that the humans can understand the animals. The last magazine is literally <laughs> Timothy signing a piece of paper. <laughs> For the first time, the train is zooming by in sunlight. All the animals on the train are singing uh, When I See an Elephant Fly. In the back of the train, Dumbo's private car, Dumbo flies down and hugs his now free mother. The end. So that is the end of Dumbo. Let's just jump right into the categories here. Let's do it, folks. As always, the categories are best song, best animated sequence, best voice actor, most traumatizing moment. Josh, tell me, what is your best song? Um, for me, it was like the the runner-up was Pink Elephants. Uh, I went with uh, I went with when I can see, oh when I see an elephant fly. <laughs> uh you know as we talked about it's just a very i don't know it was uh it's certainly the catchiest of the bunch mm-hmm. um it's just really i mean despite anything else going on it's a it's a very fun song it's very i just love everything about it it was really up but it was the only time i was really kind of ever involved in any of the songs really um but um yeah i stand by it uh tell the good people at home yours uh your favorite song I went with Pink Elephants on Parade. The runner-up was Baby Mine, mm-hmm. just because of the emotional impact of that movie, but it doesn't hit me as hard as... Uh, as we become yeah, cynical, as, crusty old men adult, yeah. in the adults that we are. Exactly. <laughs> it's, uh, it's tough. So Pink Elephant Parade is just very catchy. It's whimsical. It's good um, with the horns and all that. It's got It's got a good... Despite how visual it is, it's a very... You know... Uh, very, you got the Imperial March. You got the Resistance March. I like I like a good march, and this is a marching tune. It's a good parade uh, parade march. Yeah, best animated sequence again. I went with Pink Elephant Parade. Uh, it's just so wild and out there, and I, I 
think we said it all when we were covering it in uh, when we were talking about the segment as a whole. But it's just so much fun. And it's like an acid trip within this movie that just comes out of nowhere. It's a four minute sequence, which means that it is cumulatively like what? I, I don't even know. That's like a huge chunk of a 63 minute movie. Considering they they nixed the baby mind lullaby, which is arguably the, mo- the most emotional arc of the movie. And they, but they do this whole pink elephant sequence. Um, yeah, it means visually the most stunning sequence. I think it goes. Is that uh, your choice as well? It is, but I'll focus on the my my runner up was uh, the clown circus bit. Okay, it's, it's the other bit that had I had like as I recall, like as I was saying earlier, I couldn't recall much of this movie aside from certain visuals. But the clown bit was always something I remember because growing up, my stereotype of clowns is like cart- like being cartoonish is I think all ripped from this movie. Seeing them all run around as firemen. I didn't realize how much of what I recall in like my stereotypical image of cartoon clowns is literally just this one scene. Um, them with the pies, them with the fire hose, them coming out of the buckets, spraying each other, toppling on some, one another with ladders. It's very slapstick. Very, as I had said with certain sequences from Fantasia last week is that it's, uh, it almost feels like it directly influenced uh, like Looney Tunes. It feels. I was about very... to say this is honestly the most Looney Tunes of all the animated sequences that Disney has ever done. I mean, it's there is no sense of gravity uh, or sense of um, actual realism to it. It's just they literally stack on top of one another. They fall and they're constantly moving. It's almost like Merry Melodies. Like they're almost like the bouncing Mickey in the deep. Um, so I. Aside from Pink Elephants, of course, I, that was a sequence that always stood out in my mind. And watching it again, I was like, "Oh, this really does. This really does stand out to me." So, um, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Who's uh, your best voice actor? Um. So the runner-up I have, I guess, was the Hall Johnson Choir, or the voice to the, the Singing Crows. Again, as I had said when we were covering the segment, I like these characters despite <laughs> everything else. Um, but my the one I went with was. Uh, Edward Brophy was with Timothy. That's um, mine as well. Yeah, it's a very Jiminy Cricket kind of choice, I guess. It's just very. I'll let you talk about it, but it's kind of like he was the centerpiece. He was the literal mouthpiece for Dumbo's uh, almost his conscience. Is just like a Jiminy Cricket character, but he was um, kind of vocally. I mean, it was the most fun uh, character to follow around and listen to. It was interesting the voice he created for this character too. It almost had like a nineteen twenties like mobster slash agent yeah, kind of voice accent kind of yeah 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 it was like a chicago mobster slash agent voice it was uh I it worked it it it's very different than jiminy cricket in that regard just the way and the timbre of the voice but it still has the same impact uh so that's my answer as well yeah no i thought that was good most and, uh, traumatizing moments. Yes, take it away. Drum roll, please. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go with... Uh, see, this movie has a couple. So for my runner-ups, I have two. Uh, one is that the sequence when Mrs. Jumbo uh, gets locked up because that's like pretty fucked up stuff to just like take well, well for, for it, the way it starts to begin with this little punk ass kid like taunting an elephant is no good to begin with and then to see a mother ripped away from her child and thrown in a cage is bad um, um yeah what i really sorry i don't mean to step on your answer but just to just to reiterate that is that the reality of how I mean, we've come a long way since, of course, but it also represents the reality of the of the cruelty towards animals in circuses. I mean, obviously, you know, you don't people don't see this face to face like when they would go to the circus, but every it's become well aware. Well, I don't um, even know if circuses exist anymore. Right, uh, but when they did, even when we were kids, it's like everyone was kind of aware at the the cruelty that was going on behind closed doors. So that's just another representation of that, you know. Yeah. Um, my other runner-up was the pink elephant on parade just because again it's like an acid trip and you're watching characters get drunk the and dumbo is still technically a child a child is literally getting drunk and having hallucinations that's like pretty traumatic um but my actual answer 
is the entire Jim Crow sequence. <laughs> just, I, I know that you enjoy them, and that's good on you. Uh, but for me, the racial insensitivity is a little uh, too much to bear in modern day eyes. Uh, again, maybe they are like good characters, but they are working under the context of racial stereotypes. They can't actually be characters because they are being caricatures of a racial stereotype. So I just feel like that's, that's rough. That, that's a little traumatic, especially if you are a little black kid watching this movie and to watch like your kin uh, denigrated in such a way in an animated movie. So I don't know that that's my traumatic. See thing. again, it's just I, I I respectfully disagree only because I think they're also the more like I say yeah the stereotypes of course the clear stereotypes but I also think they're like the only um they're only like the real they're only the tr- true intelligent characters I feel of the movie or they're the only ones that are a stuff. I mean I guess Mrs Jumbo is the only real like uh, uh, consciously like good character or whatever but I just I feel like it is a more of a positive representation even if they're under very negative stereotypes i don't know i guess i'm just i feel like it's it's like such a 50 50 with me because i can clearly see it no i'm not a hundred percent uh like i understand exactly what you're saying and i don't completely disagree with what you're saying either it's just it's one of those lines that is like very hard it's a totally different yeah, it's a totally different time now, too. And so. that's kind of why I chose it as a traumatic sequence. The times have definitely changed, and you are never, ever going to get characters like this ever again. <laughs> it's it's very interesting just reliving all this to see these moments that each episode is kind of like, oh, this is the kind of stuff, like we were saying with the um, the demon, the, the Bald Mountain Demon. It's like you'll you use the, that, that same language. Like, we'll never see a character like this ever again in a Disney movie. Yeah, the Crows, but it's, you know? Well, in a very different uh, way. So what is your most traumatic sequence? I just wanted the classic. I wanted Pink Elephants. It's yeah. it's much like Bald Mountain with Fantasia. It's the one moment that stands out that you and I could just talk about because it's so different. It's so unexpected. It's so jarring for a Disney movie. It's jarring for an animated movie. Um, the context of it is very... And the only time I ever recall anything like this being teased was when, I don't know if you ever watched Winnie the Pooh growing up, where they did the Heffalumps and Woozles. Yes, it almost feels directly influenced by this scene because it's like I have no doubt that it was influenced by this. I scene. mean, it's all Disney, so it's um, it's just very. Is the word? It literally takes you out of the movie. The colors change, the visuals change. Like you said, you're watching a child character in this very dark and adult world. Kind of these these elephants are kind of like separating, and they come back together. They get the mean eyes. Um, I don't know. It's wild, and it's and yeah. it just keeps going on, and the characters keep dancing and morphing and shaping. Like well, Bald Mountain. to your point, though, I it definitely is uh, directly influential on the Heffalumps and Woozles because Disney in the seventies and eighties got a lot of slack for essentially copying what they had already done. And that is like right out of the playbook of Dumbo. So absolutely, but I can't take, I can't argue with your traumatizing moment that was up there for me too. It's one of those one. I think we'll we'll come across it a couple of times in these movies that there are that we just will. It's it'll be impossible not to gloss over them multiple times because of the times we're in now. Be it well, um, whatever the crows or the pink elephants or whatever it is, is that it's just. It'll be very interesting to see because I am not, I mean, I I think we both know what our traumatic scene will be during Bambi. Like, (laughs) no spoilers, but I'm quite sure both of us were going to have the same answer in that one. But when we get to the wartime era stuff, I'm not as familiar with any of that material as I am with these. Yeah. So it's going to be very interesting to see. So I'm very, yeah, I'm actually excited because I'm not familiar with it. I mean, know of them, but I don't. I can't recall anything about most of those movies. But I remember the Adventures of Ichabod, which is that's Sleepy Hollow, right? That is Sleepy Hollow. Yeah. But anyway, we digress. Josh, we'll, tell we'll me, there. what are your final thoughts on this movie? Um, 
everything about what we were saying earlier about this kind of being the thing that saved Disney because it's like, what does this really hark back to? Um, and for me, it's kind of like, it comes back to the simplicity of this, of this movie. This is a very, this is by the books, I think the most straightforward story we've seen out of everything we've watched thus far. Um, like Fantasia is just a series of musical sketches that are basically very elaborate, but like, and Snow White's a straightforward story. But with this, it's just like, uh, you're just watching a, you go from a, a, a mother elephant who just wants a baby, having a baby elephant to having them separated. And then the baby elephant having the courage to, um, you know, kind of better himself. And I don't know, Dumbo's also, I, the trivia earlier I read is he's one of the only silent protagonists of the Disney resume. He's just this little character. You don't, he doesn't speak. So like you feel for him more, there's more empathy. Um, but yeah, everything between how cruel the other characters are, which I feel like was even more so than Pinocchio, which is the only other time I really saw it, was like a, is the actual, uh, yeah, cruelty is the only really word that comes to mind, no, which is why spot on word for all the other characters. And they're all terrible, which is why I love, which is why I defend the crows the way I do because they're such nice characters. And so it's it's funny just to see this world where, especially something around the circus and 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 animal cruelty, which is something that will be kind of like of a bygone era. Like by the time, I mean, even kids now growing up now, it, it's going to be it's something of a will be something of a bygone era. So this whole movie almost represents something of a bygone era, not just the circus or the depiction of the crows the way they do, or or any or the pink elephants or anything tra traumatizing. It's it's something kind of a, a, a like many of these like 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 the last two movies we watched. It's a product of its time. And it's something that's kind of of a lost, completely lost era. And that's going to ultimately what makes it more special. Um, again, down to the bone structure, it's just a simple story. And I think that's, it's something that's inspiring, I guess, for people. And it's just something that's kind of heartwarming. So, I mean, it's as, as always, it's not something that I love personally, but I respect it. Um, as far as like what we've watched thus far, it's probably one of the weakest thus far, but it's, I also can't deny its endearing nature. It's probably the, by, by by the books, it's probably the sweetest movie we've watched. It's probably the most the kind. Ultimately, it's got the most heartwarming message. Um, very similar to how I felt about Pinocchio and Geppetto. There's the there's the parent child relationship, which really is the anchor of everything, and you really feel it here. It's very sad. Everything with the with Dumbo and the mom is very sad. They tug on very emo uh, real emotions that are just down to the human core. It's nothing. It's sad. It's it's frightening it's funny it's whatever it's just like there's it's just an easygoing movie and so um i think it works for what it's trying to do and uh as always i appreciate it and i admire it and especially animation as i get older i appreciate old animation a lot uh more than i ever took for granted when i was younger so yeah <laughs> there it is folks <laughs> uh a lot of what you said rings true for me as well uh this movie, more so than any of the others thus far, is just predicated on primal emotions uh, that they accept. Like, it's just very primal emotions with a cute character at the center. You know, they deal with uh, love, happiness, anger, and just how a child is supposed to come to terms with all of that. You know, Dumbo is just a very docile character. He doesn't really even have much character. He just kind of goes with the flow the entire time. So it's, this movie is just very sweet and simple. That doesn't mean it's bad. It just means that to me, it's a, I'm not even going to say it's a step down necessarily either. It's just more in line with, I feel like it's an elongated Disney short that was blown up into a movie out of necessity. Watching Dumbo fly, you know, cool. I, it, it just, rewatching it this time, it didn't have the emotional impact that I felt maybe when I was a kid watching this movie either, which maybe is affecting me. I feel like I'm just taking all of the outside information I know about this movie and 
putting it on top of what I am watching simply by knowing that Disney created this movie out of necessity to save the company and he needed something cheap and quick. Truly just like it affects the way in which I watch this movie because I think it permeates outward when you realize those facts. When you're a kid just watching this movie, you can understand, like I said, the primal emotions it's hitting on. Except hopefully the kids don't understand what it's like being drunk. They just think the pink elephant parade is fun. But in general, you understand that some people are assholes and you understand that like you're, you understand your mother's love. You understand, uh, you know, all of that stuff. You're just trying to make your way through childhood. But I don't know, to me, this just feels like the weakest of the bunch that we have watched thus far. It's unabashedly a cartoon. I may be holding it against the movie in an unfair way, simply because what we have watched before pushed the boundaries of animation so far ahead of it. Snow White had a very simple story, but the fact that it was the first animated movie ever gave it the ability to be a simple story. But Pinocchio and Fantasia took what was built upon with Snow White and just blew through the door. Mm-hmm. This felt like just reverting back three steps for the necessity of money. I guess those are my final thoughts. Well, I mean, obviously proved successful with it being making more money than the previous films, but... Yeah, but you, you know... You also, like you said, you know the backstory, so it's... Yeah, but at the same time, expediency or, you know, not being able to focus so much on story doesn't always equal lesser box office numbers. You know, look at the Transformers movies. Oh, I mean, yeah. Those movies are not necessarily good, but they make a shit ton of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, money doesn't equate success necessarily for a film, in my opinion. Uh, like overall success, like it's a financial success, but it doesn't necessarily mean, I get what you're saying as based yeah. on a story, but yeah, I mean, I think this also for me, I, again, haven't watched them in a long time, but I think this predates how I would feel about a lot of later Disney movies in the middle era. What's called oh, the second, uh, silver age, I guess, Silver Age. Yeah. where, uh, I think like, like, um, like the Cinderella's and the, and the Peter Pan's come to mind where it's like, I can recall in uh, appreciating them, but I can't recall I don't know. They don't stand out as much. I just know that they're there. Um, but I, I, I can't speak on any of them until we get there, which, um, but yeah, I, I think it's just one of those things that the more it's like a classic case of the more you unearth the history and the backstory, the more you realize how dark things actually are and it can put a filter over, you know, creating well, more of a cynical uh, adult. One word that you just <laughs> used that I can't take away from this is that it clearly is a classic. This movie is one of the, stepping stones of Disney animation. Oh, for sure, yeah. And I can't take that away from this movie either. Yeah. So People love Dumbo. Uh, it's just not one of my favorites in overall. Even the Silver Age, when Disney kind of like understood what they were doing, the stories are more interesting than the story I'm watching in Dumbo. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's kind of inevitable. That's that's what happens, you know, as I get older and crustier, you know, I'm kind of like, what am I taking away from this? That's why I always say I admire, like, the animated sequences. I admire the music and I admire some stories. I feel like these are little history lessons each week, um, which is cool because I've never looked at the movies from these points of view before, which is why I keep saying this make, the backstory would make a great show. Yeah. <laughs> but so- I think that's a good point. I think that's where we'll end uh, our final thoughts. Josh, tell me, what is your pick of the week? So I was actually saving this in the pocket for whenever, what would be the right time. I did not know what the right time would be until we started talking about it. So I'm actually going to use it right now. Is uh, Brad Bird's 1999, The Iron Giant. That's a good um, one. Probably one of the better non-Disney animated movies. Probably one of the better animated movies I've ever seen. What really stands true is the silent kind of the the quiet humbling uh protagonist was misunderstood by everyone around him that's the way i see it so um you know uh, iron giant's brilliant because it's it takes place in the you know, 1950s uh whatever time of of war and devastation and so you've got this whole thing where it's a relationship between this 
kind of what's seen as a big as a monster, a big monster and a small child who under you know they have this relationship, and it's kind of like everyone around them. Sorry, <laughs> it's okay. It happens. The cat's just trying to kill me. Go on. Just box her. Put her in the box. Put her in the chokey. That chokey. Yeah. But on. I. But there's a lot of. I mean, yeah. Uh, Hogarth, the main character, has a relationship with his mother, but like really, it's filled with a lot of cruel characters, and so I see a lot of that same behavior where they just want to like, they don't understand the creature. They don't understand the monster. Um, there's a lot of a, 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 there's a way for me in terms of Iron Giant and what he represents and seeing him as a weapon. And there's a lot of heavy adult themes there, but that whole simplistic idea of uh, a, a child and a, an unknown source, you know what I mean? It's kind of like, it reminded me a little, I guess, of, you could say like Dumbo and, and Timothy have this little relationship crux of the movie it really is their relationship in the same way it is with the iron giant and so i guess there's bigger messages going on even if that's a way bigger message for me um but i can't recommend it enough i do love it so i'm gonna stand I by it watch that movie in years that's it's been fun. like that that's something i really need to rewatch. it's fabulous it, it is. actually is very it holds up very well and it's actually it's actually very good it has a lot of great elements to it i can't recommend it enough yeah uh for my pick of the week i'm gonna do sean baker's the florida project uh i know it seems very different on the outside from dumbo but in reality you're watching a child with little to no power trying to find the magic around her uh to try and help her mother, which is almost kind of like Dumbo, except the child in the Florida Project likes to cry more than Dumbo likes to cry. Uh, the movie is, and instead of racist crows, you have Willem Dafoe uh, warding off pedophiles. Uh, it's true. Yeah, that movie is almost documentary style. It is beautiful. It is- It's raw. Raw, it is somber, it is, every emotion that you could possibly want. You're Not only are you watching from the child's perspective, but you were trying to gauge the mother's perspective of a woman just trying to hold on to, to her child, you know, trying to give the child the best life she possibly can. And it's hard to do. And I'm not gonna spoil anything, but the movie takes place right outside uh, it takes place in Orlando within the area surrounding Disney World. So you're watching these people so close to the magic, so close to like this idyllic world that they want to be in. So ironic, yeah. But yet they can't attain it because yeah. they live on the outskirts. And that's kind of what Dumbo is too until the very end when he learns how to fly. So Well, it's, it's the happy ending, you know. Yeah, well, the Dumb, Disney Dumbo, happy ending. The, the Disney get they get the Disney ending, you know. Yeah, so that's my pick. I recommend it. Uh, it's great. It's a quality, quality flick. I agree. Very classy, very, very smooth. <laughs> so I think that's where we're going to end it. Uh, so as always, you could follow me on Instagram at Mr. Filmart, and you can follow the podcast at Who's Filmography. Hey. hey. <laughs> and yes. next week we will finish up the Disney Golden Age, but then we go into the wartime age and go and have some real crazy fun. So until then, we will see you next week when we cover Bambi. <laughs> <laughs>